This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2018 Launchpad Pilots Competition. Now in their fifth year, the Launchpad competitions have helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get stuffed, and led to four bidding wars. When you enter your pilot script this year, you'll save $15 off your entry just by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout, as a special thank you to our listeners. For more information on the Tracking Board's current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are going to talk about TV script formatting 101. You definitely won't want to press skip on this nail-biting episode of Paper Team. <laughs> it's important stuff. You gotta know it. <laughs> Welcome back to our Paper Scraps segment, and this week we're going to be responding to one email and one voicemail that we received. So the first one up is an email from Jeffrey. And Jeffrey says, Hello Alex, I've started listening to Paper Team lately, and it's been one of the most practically helpful screenwriting podcasts I've heard. In an early episode, the Declare Your TV major, you emphasize the importance of figuring out what type of writer you are, drama, comedy, and focus on honing your skill in that sole genre, especially for beginners. Basically, better to be a master of one trade than a jack at many. However, I also listened to Children of Tendu, and they recommended writing scripts of different types of shows to prove your versatility as a writer, claiming this to make a writer more attractive to studios and agents than someone who clings to just one genre. Obviously, this seemed to completely contrast with Paper Team's advice. Do you have any thoughts on this, such as a way to reconcile these two pieces of advice? Thank you very much for all the work put into the website and the podcast. Well, thank you for the email, Jeffrey. And this is actually an awesome question that is going to help us clarify two different things in TV, the format and the genre. So on one hand, you do have the format, which is essentially the difference between writing a script that is a comedy, also known as a half hour, or a script that is a drama which is known as a one hour. And that is specifically what we were referring to in our Declare TV major episode. Because in TV, this isn't just a discussion about tone or style. It's also an actual difference in the kinds of script you'll be writing as well as the shows you'll be working on. So for example, if you're trying to be staffed on Better Call Saul, it doesn't make sense to be writing a spec for Big Bang Theory. And if you're trying to work on Modern Family, you probably don't want your next TV spec pilot to be this sort of epic high budget fantasy see period piece. And the reality is that comedy and drama in TV are two different beasts. You've got the format, the structure, the number of acts, the number of pages, the breaking process. They're pretty different overall. And so if you look at writer's rooms on a writing level, a TV comedy writer's room doesn't usually function the same way a drama writer's room would. It's actually common in comedies for jokes to be punched up in the room as a group, but you don't really punch up quips of dialogue collectively in a TV drama room. That's just not how things work. Now, obviously, the lines are getting blurrier every day, but when you're first starting out, that is the TV major we're mainly referring to in our episode. So if you want to work for one-hour shows, most of your TV samples should be of one-hour shows. And if you want to work in half-hours, most of your TV samples should be of half-hours. And speaking as someone who works for a literary manager in my day job, I, and I'm sort of constantly evaluating new writers and their potential to join our roster. And I can tell you firsthand that someone that has, say, a half-hour multicam sample, along with a gritty hour drama sample, and also like a feature musical script, I'm not really going to have any idea what to do with them. Like, usually we need to see at least two consistent samples that live in roughly the same world, that is 
two one-hour drama pilot scripts or two comedy features, etc., to feel confident that this writer knows what they're doing and they can back it up. Because the process of breaking a baby writer is an endless string of pitching you to people, an agent, a studio, network executives, producers, showrunners. So the easier that you make it for us to do that, because you don't have that previous experience to draw on, you're brand new. By giving yourself a strong, focused selling point or brand, as some people might call it, then it's easier for everyone. You know, if my boss is like, hey, Star Trek is staffing up, I'm like, okay, cool. So should we submit our awesome sci-fi drama writer who has two amazing pilots and a short story and a sci-fi feature who lives and breathes sci-fi and is knowledgeable and passionate about it? Or our writer who just wrote one sci-fi pilot a year ago, but is currently working on an animated <laughs> kids feature sample and just got off of CBS's Man of the Plan? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're both CBS. So I think... Uh, Oh, yeah, got close perfect ver- vertical uh, integration. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, as we've always said, you can always jump ship and dabble around once you've established yourself in a career. There are many writers who have done that. But when you are first breaking in, it's so important just to know your strengths and lead with them because it's like it's such a numbers game of all the new writers in town and you want to give yourself the best possible shot. Oh, I totally agree. And I think that brings us to the other side of the question that was asked and what Children of Tendu was referring to. And that is the sort of the genre slash voice part. That's a much harder issue to differentiate and one that's actually really based on an individual basis so it kind of all comes down to how you want to be branded as a writer as nick said and what your voice is as a creative so obviously everyone has kind of a different opinion on that subject Uh, if you listen to our past episodes with reps and writers most agree that you need to have some through line in your samples now that doesn't mean you should write the same thing over and over again just that your samples have the same voice. The extreme TV examples would be Aaron Sorkin or Shonda Rhimes. If you compare shows like Sports Night and The West Wing or Grey's Anatomy and Scandal, those are all very different worlds and stories, but you can still tell that they were written by the same respective people. There's still some versatility there, but they already know the kinds of stories they want to tell. Yeah, I think that, you know, we want to get a sense of who the writer is by reading a script. It's a strong point of view, a confidence or a uniqueness to their voice that is memorable. I've read scripts where the story structure and execution wasn't great at all, but I love the moment-to-moment experience of reading the words on the page and being immersed in that journey. Again, think about reading a Tarantino or a Shane Black or a Tony Gilroy script. There's a certain, as Alex might say, je ne sais quoi, <laughs> to uh, reading the work of a writer with a clear voice. It kind of wakes you up from all the dreary, mediocre scripts you've been trudging through and it grabs you and pulls you in and makes you want to read on rather than sit there and wonder how many pages you got left to go. Yeah, totally. And just to finish on that subject, I mean, my personal opinion is that when you are first starting out, you want to make it as easy as possible for reps and executives to understand who you are as a writer, as well as the kinds of stories you want to tell. Now, that could mean the type of genre you write for, science fiction, historical, family-based, etc. But it also could mean the style you write in, as Nick said about Tarantino and Shane Black and all those people. Or it could also mean the type of characters you like to explore. And whether you call that your brand or your voice or your story, it's all kind of the same thing. It's who you are as a writer. All of these people have very limited attention spans and limited time in their day. So make it as easy as possible for them to understand who you are and what you want to do. Especially Tarantino. Have you seen his writing? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Moving on to our voicemail. uh, And this voicemail comes from Keith. Let's take a listen. Hey, Happy New Year. This is Keith from Blackwood, New Jersey. Just wondering if Final Draft is still the industry standard for screenwriting, or has it been supplanted by newer software like Fade In, Slugline, or Writer's Duet? Keep up the good work, and I look forward to listening to your podcast in 2018. Bye. 
Well, happy new year to you too, Keith. Yeah, thanks for uh, listening. Thank you. And uh, there are a lot of choices out there in terms of software. You got obviously Final Draft, Fade In, Write to Duet, Highland, Celtex, Movie Magic, Screenwriter. But before we talk about shows, what softwares do you personally use, Nick? I use Final Draft, you know, simple as that. It can be any edition. You don't really need all the bells and whistles and story maps to write a script. I used to use Celtex when I was a, a poor student, although I tried it again recently, helping a friend with a script that they had up on Celtex. It seems like now a lot of it's like online and that was kind of confusing to me and now maybe they're charging for something so i can't really speak to how it is these days i have also used highland which is john august's app that he developed i think it's just on mac i tried that out for a bit and once you get used to it it works pretty well i appreciate that the cost is like 30 dollars, and it's got a lot of great features like it melts pdf documents into screenplay formats and you can export or import any file type but ultimately i didn't really enjoy the experience of writing on the page quite as much it wasn't as seamless as i would have liked so i just stick with final draft and a lot of people do use that file type to send around in the industry so it's yeah, useful. the .fdx uh, isn't highland mostly a content consumption app or is it also content creation uh, no, it's, it's certainly like a screenwriting software in the same way that final draft is as well on my end i also use just final draft i'm old school that way i actually don't really like cloud-based software solutions i just like to have that backup copy on my own drive so that nobody spies on me because that's the world we live in right now edward snowden uh, is leaking all of alex's hot spec screenplays exactly but I also heard good things about Writer Duet and the new Writer Duet Pro, which is their offline solution. So I may try those down the line. But as we said, uh, both of us use Final Drafts. Now, when it comes to TV shows, the software you will be using will have been decided by the showrunner. Or if she or he doesn't really have a preference, that decision will fall on the script coordinator who's going to make that call. But just based on my own anecdotal experience, all the shows I've worked on have used Final Draft. I do know a couple of odd examples of shows that I've used Movie Magic Screenwriter because a specific EP was used to using that software and required everyone on staff to have it. But honestly, I would not worry too much about the software because once you're working on a show, whatever the software you end up having to use, whether it's Final Draft or Movie Magic, the studio or production company will give you an official key for that software so you won't have to purchase it. Now, sometimes you get lucky and the key is permanent, but other times, most times, it's only valid for the duration of the season. So it's not as if you can just get away with keeping the software forever. Yeah, ultimately, you're going to be saving your script as a PDF when you send it to anyone. So it doesn't really matter what you write it on as long as you're happy with what you're working with. Most of them are forming it to the, the industry standards. So yeah, just do what makes you happy. I do hear that Writer Duet is good for writing teams, like simultaneous writing, working together, collaboration and stuff, but I have not used it myself. Yeah, and I feel like this is always a difference between something that's written on spec or internally versus something that's going be in production. You talked about PDFs being exchanged. I mean, a lot of the files being exchanged are either PDFs or if it comes down to the actual writing staff, most files are going to be FDX, which are obviously final draft standards. All right, let's get into TV script formatting. And before we start, there's a little disclaimer we want to make about this episode. And in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the fundamentals and differences in formatting TV scripts. But this will not be a thorough breakdown of what a script coordinator goes through. And that is the person on staff who tackles proofreading and distribution and clearance and other production elements. So if you are actually interested in being a script coordinator or more information about script coordinating, then you can check out our previous episode on the subject with our good friend Franklin, who was at the time a script coordinator on The Exorcist, and that is PT21. And I'm sure we'll do another deep dive into that topic in a future episode. But now let's talk about formatting. 
Let's begin with the differences between the actual formats of scripts that you're going to be seeing for different things like film, TV, half hour, one hours. So one of the obvious big differences is going to be from a feature screenplay to a TV script. Aside from the obvious length, 90 to 120 pages for a feature instead of say 30 to 60, depending on what kind of TV script you're writing, notably there'll be no act breaks written into a feature screenplay. Even if there are three acts structurally, you're not going to see someone actually writing act one, end of act one, beginning of act two all that kind of stuff in a feature. Yeah, totally. And I feel like that is the main difference between film and TV. It also translates narratively, right? Uh, when you're breaking a TV episode, usually you're going to be writing that story to those act breaks or to that cliffhanger. Whereas in feature, that's not usually how it works. But outside of that, really on the formatting front, it's usually pretty similar outside of just the act breaks. Yeah, I can't really think of anything else major about it that is different from TV. Obviously, on like a story structure level, it's going to be self-contained instead of an ongoing thing, but that's not really to do with formatting. So. Exactly. Now, in terms of the one hour versus half hour, that is really the first big difference. We mentioned in our paper scrap segment this entire thing about format, and it holds true here again. One hour usually are going to be between five and seven acts, and a half hour is going to be between two and three acts. Another little difference there is that usually in a comedy, the very first little thing that you get is going to be called a cold open instead of a teaser, which is usually what they would call it in drama, right? We can't really give you a page channel for each act because obviously every show is going to be different. In fact, outside of the format between one hour and half hour, you do have differences between network and cable, right? So if you write something for maybe HBO, you will not have act breaks built in versus something for CBS or ABC, which may have seven acts. Or th that could also be six acts in a tag. Although the, the vocabulary there differs depending on the show. Yeah, comedy and drama, I think both use the term tag for their little end scene. So one of the major structural formatting differences in comedy is the difference between multicam and single cam scripts. If you physically look at two of them next to each other, you'll see that they are very different and it's immediately noticeable. So some of the major differences, I'm not going to go into every single thing, but some of the major differences, a single cam is mostly going to follow the same formatting as a drama on the page, but a multicam is going to have double-spaced dialogue, all of the action description is going to be in caps, and then the things that would usually be capped in like a single cam script are instead underlined. That's things like character intros, transitions, major notable actions or sound effects. The slug lines are also underlined, and notably at the start of each scene, you actually have this little bracket underneath the scene heading that includes the names of all the characters that are going to appear in the scene. They tend to use more parentheticals than a single cam would, and often you'll see the page headers up in the top right will have the act and scene number listed listed in them, whereas you don't put as much, if anything, in the page headers on single cam scripts. I have a feeling that the multicam format is so different because it stems from theater. If you look at one act plays, they're probably closer to the amount of verbiage that you would find on multicam scripts. Yeah, absolutely. If you take a look at a play script, you will notice that I think all the action and description is in caps and it does look in that similar kind of like centered type formatting like a multicam. Same with like radio plays too. Like I think it was sort of a derivation of those two different forms coming together. And then the last thing that I have some experience with is animation scripts, particularly for shorter like kids content, 11 minute stuff. You're going to see difference in how heavily directed it is on the page. You're going to get a lot more visuals, a lot more sounds, a lot more things going to be capped to draw attention to them because you are creating this world from scratch. We're not just pointing a camera at a room and capturing what's there. Everything has to be described in some way. So sound effects are a really big thing. They're usually going to be capped sometimes on their own line with like, you know, SFX, things like that, because they have to go out 
out and create that from scratch somewhere with you know, Foley and all that kind of thing. There's also this sound called a walla, which uh, <laughs> basically refers to like crowd noise. People going like whoa, 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 whoa. walla. Yeah, it's spelled like W A L L A. So huh. that's a, that's something you'll see there as well. But aside from that, one of the main differences you'll notice, at least on the professional drafts for like the voice record and everything, is that they put a number next to each line of dialogue. So they actually count up how many lines of dialogue there are, and that kind of gets pulled for the voice script when they're doing the record. There are some differences, obviously, between this is mainly for kind of like kids and shorter form content. Primetime animation for stuff like The Simpsons and Family Guy is a little closer to your traditional stuff. We'll go into more details in terms of the -the on-the-page formatting for comedies and dramas later on this episode. But in terms of the default, default page number, usually, generally speaking, for one hour, that's about 45 to maybe 63, 65 pages. For comedies, you're looking at a half hour for like a network single cam. For something that's on cable, you could get up to 40 pages, maybe 45 if you're pushing it. And then when you're looking at multicams and even some animation, the page count tends to run a little differently. So you'll see much longer scripts. Like some episodes of The Simpsons are 50, 55 pages. Multicams can end up around that to the 50 to 60 range just because of all the double spacing and how much space there is on the page. Yeah, a lot of it depends on the pacing also of the episode. You may notice that premium cable shows like Sopranos and Mad Men or Game of Thrones that kind of run into almost the 70 page count. But that's because usually they have a bigger length of finished produced episodes. Uh, on the flip side, you can look at something like How to Get Away with Murder, which also has a similar amount of pages, 65, 70. But that's because the pacing of each scene is quite different. Uh, you can have a whole scene that lasts for a second. And that's why you may have 70 scenes in a single episode. Now, in terms of page number per act, as we said, it's really hard to gauge the rule thumb used to be about 15 pages per act for four act one hour shows but obviously that's long gone by now so you can look at anywhere from maybe seven to 12 pages or maybe 15 pages but it drastically differs compared to something like the good wife which has a whole first act that's maybe 15 to 20 pages. That's quite different from like a Grey's Anatomy teaser that's maybe three or four pages. Yeah, as long as you're working somewhere roughly in the vicinity of what's expected and you're not blowing it out too far or doing too little, you should be fine. Don't worry about hitting exact page counts and numbers so much, unless you're in production when they actually need that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And if you were working on a spec script or a spec pilot, at that point, I would always recommend looking at similar paste or a similar format of shows to base it on. So before we even get into the script draft itself, there are a number of other story documents that you might want to understand a little bit about what they look like and their formatting as well. So do you want to talk about those, Alex? Absolutely. And whether you're writing a spec or in a writer's room, you won't be writing those first initial ideas or story beats directly into that final draft document. You're probably going to be using something like Google Docs, Word, or Scrivener, or maybe some other outlining tool. And what that translates to in a writer's room are the whiteboards. That's the part of the brainstorming process when writers sit around the table for weeks, breaking each episode, uh, eating candy, and figuring out the shape of the story to be told. And I've been on the record uh, saying that in TV, especially everything that happens before the draft is 80% of the work, and that is that work. So between that initial brainstorming process and the final draft document, these are some of the documents you should be aware of that you may end up writing. So the first one is called a story area, and not all shows require them, and it's usually a network 
work or studio preference. And story areas are essentially a couple paragraphs long, maybe a page at the most, and summarize the entire episode in prose. Then you have treatments. Again, not all shows will have them, but as mentioned, you'll usually have to provide some kind of document between that whiteboarding, a resume process, and the outline, which I'll get to in a second. And the treatments are kind of longer versions of story areas. They're also written in prose with no dialogue, but they will be a bit more descriptive with the story since they can run on a few pages. Yeah, obviously the idea is that at various stages you are throwing these ideas over to the studio and the network for their approval, which is why you need to kind of, you can't just like be like, come over and take a look at our whiteboards. Let us know what you think. You've got to put that into some little distillation for them to be like, oh, cool. We like the sound of this. Keep going. Give us an outline, all that kind of stuff. Or uh, give us more notes. We need to (laughs) fix the entire show. And after story errors and treatments, you will have to write that outline, the outline. And this is the closest document to a script besides the actual script. It is essentially every every beat, every scene written out in prose. So if you were to summarize every single scene in a paragraph and write all of them out in a single document, this would be the outline. And once again, outlines do not contain dialogue, but they should still give a sense of emotion. That's usually when each writer can shine in their own writing because obviously up until that point, the brainstorming process, the breaking of each episode has been as a communal experience. And now that is when each writer is gonna go to outline and perhaps enhance and bring their own voice to that process. Right, it's like a weird combination between a short story and like a synopsis. And I will say that you got to be aware that an outline is actually different from what some people call a beat sheet. And I haven't really talked about beat sheets that much because from my own experience, this isn't really an official document people are looking for. It doesn't give enough information for it to be an outline, but it also details every scene. So it's not quite a story area. Yeah, that might be something more that the writers use internally to help break out the beats of the story and then craft their outline or script and stuff around that. Now, going back to formatting, I would say that the earlier in the process you are, the looser you can be with formatting. And by that, I mean that these very early documents like story areas won't usually be written in a fancy final draft software. Usually writers will type them in any old text editor and then format it all with the same font, which is usually Courier. The bottom line is this. If you're working on a spec pilot, the reality is that no one will be seeing those early documents except you and maybe your writing group and your mother. So formatting doesn't really matter that much at that stage. So once you're through that whole story document process and you're getting into the drafts, I think we mentioned in the other episode, you're going to go through a couple of drafts like the writer's draft, studio network draft, uh, your table read draft into production draft. Like once it's ready for production, anytime that you start rewriting pages, they're going to be issuing what's called revisions. And those are going to come out in different colors, depending on what stage you're at of the revision. So per the WGA, the color order of the pages you're going to see, and what's important to know is that they usually don't replace the whole script. They will just take out whichever pages have been rewritten and put in pages with a different color. So your script ends up looking like a bit of a rainbow of colors by the time you get through shooting. The color order goes like this, white drafts, blue revisions, pink revisions, yellow revisions, green revisions, goldenrod revisions, buff revisions, salmon revisions, cherry revisions, and then it loops back around again and you start doing second of that color. So second white, second blue, second pink. You can even get to third and fourth. It's crazy how many drafts you end up on. Some shows don't use certain colors, especially those later ones like buff, salmon, cherry. A lot of them just cycle through white, blue, pink, yellow, green, goldenrod, then second white, second blue, etc. without going to quite that level. It really just depends on what paper stock you have yeah, in the exactly. cupboard. Like, honestly, <laughs> it's not a uh, very formal and... Rec- be nice to your writer's PA. Just uh, use the two colors and <laughs> it will all be fine. <laughs> 
just looking at spec scripts again, uh, in development, you should not really have colored pages unless you're tracking them for your own benefit. The colors will only enter a script once we're going into scheduling or budgeting or production. And this should really only apply to drafts, so not those story errors. You don't have a second buff revision of uh, story errors, uh, at least that I know of. <laughs> Outlines and early documents, from my own experience, are noted as second revision or third revision or maybe writer's draft, uh, but they don't have those colors as a factor. Yeah, or just dates on them or something like that. Exactly. But I think people get a little carried away with all the bells and whistles and features of Final Draft and like, well, I'm sitting here and I'm writing a script and this is my second revision of my script. So cool, I'm going to put it in revisions mode. So like, don't feel like you have to do that. It really is just for production and it might just end up with a bunch of stars everywhere and making things look confusing. By the way, stars are the revision marks that note when a line has changed from the original draft. I have seen people use those kind of revision marks and stars aside from production for just internal reference when you're going back and forth in drafts with, say, a producer or even just your manager and you're kind of getting notes back and forth. It's just easier to know what's changed. They don't have to read through the whole script again and try and pick out what it is. But if you're just writing your spec pilot, you don't need to put whatever draft number it is on the cover page. You know, any spec script that you actually finish and send out should just look like a first draft. You don't need to write this is my 10th revision, <laughs> just so all the, the town knows that I spent way too long working oh on this, boy. you know. Yeah, I mean, that that is actually pretty common within writing staff, just to help the script coordinator if you do have those revision marks. Again, all that is just internally, and it's the same thing for scene numbers. You know, a lot of people ask, should I use scene numbers? Does that seem more professional to you? And uh, the answer is no. Uh, once again, <laughs> scene numbers are there for internal tracking. Uh, some writers do use scene numbers with outlines and drafts specifically for notes. So since people may be using a final draft document and others may be using a collated PDF, working based on pages or page numbers doesn't work that well. So that's why they use a C number so that we understand which scene you're giving notes on. And for specs, I mean, numbers should only be for you and again, your mother and whoever else is giving you notes internally. But do not send a draft of your own script that contains C numbers to some festival or competition or agent. That's amateur hour. Exactly. Exactly. And an interesting note is if you're in production, once they get to the production draft, the script pages and numbers get locked and scene numbers. So essentially what ends up happening from there is making sure that everyone still has the same pages and points of reference. So they will sometimes have to issue like page 31A or like add like an entire page of scene omitted or whatever. So you can see some weird stuff going on in there. But again, none of that you have to worry about. A script coordinator will be doing that for you. If you're on stuff, you're writing your own spec, not your problem. Like Alex said, if you put scene numbers on your spec pilot, it does look like amateurish and people will kind of think that way of you if they see that in most cases. All right, now let's talk about the formatting on the page when you're there writing the script and some common mistakes that people run into. Now, quick disclaimer again, sometimes there isn't one right answer. There's no literal rule book for screenplay formatting that everyone has to stick to. Just be consistent. If you're writing a spec pilot, a lot of it can come down to personal preference. And as Alex has said in a room, it's going to be the showrunner or the script coordinator's decision as to some of the stylistic choices. Yeah, I did want to emphasize that again, that on a TV show, those kind of in-house page formatting rules are decided by the showrunner who may have a certain quirk or taste alongside the script coordinator. And if you are on a writing staff, you probably won't be tracking those rules, uh, but the script coordinator is going to be the person who will do that uh, once they process your draft. But when you're writing a sample or a spec script, it all falls on you to make those decisions as well as track that formatting. So let's talk about what that looks like on the page. 
So starting from the top of the page and working our way down from kind of the macro to the micro, looking at your headers and footers, that is the very top of the page and very bottom of the page outside of the margins, typically all you're going to want in your header is just a page number in the top right. And that page number starts from page two. You never actually put one on page one. Uh, you don't obviously put any numbers on your cover page or anything like that. Just to clarify, the page one, two, and so forth does not count the cover page. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be cover page, first page with like a blank header, and then next page is going to start with two, next page three, four, etc. Aside from that, I really don't think you need anything else in the header or the footer. I've seen people write the name of the script in the header of every page, and I don't think that that's necessary. Right. The header will usually contain the revisions, information about the revision, let's say the, the color of the page or a second revision and so forth. But that's usually going to be automated, much like the page number is. So that's not something for you to worry about. Exactly. Unless, like we said before, it's a multi-cam script. Sometimes that has this little thing that has like the act and the scene number in that. But for most scripts, you're not going to have to worry about that. So moving down from the header, the next thing you're usually going to see uh, at the beginning of an act. And so it is denoted on the page by act one. And then, you know, it's in the middle. It's usually underlined. And then you go down again, and that's when you start writing everything else, like your scene headers and et cetera, which we'll get to. But essentially, you want to make sure that you are bookending all of your acts. You've got act one. Then when you get to the end of it, you do the same thing again, centered, underlined, end of act one. Then you do a page break, and then your next act starts with act two. Again, get down to the end of act two, blah, 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 for however many acts you have. Yeah, that's usually the first thing you got to look out for in the formatting of a TV script. That's the one thing that you will not find in features, and that is these acts that are going to be breaking up your script. And that's usually going to interfere a lot with that page count, because at the end of each act, you will have that page break. So you may actually be over on the page count without knowing it. I'm kind of OCD in the sense that I love to end my acts at the end of a page so that way i'm not overflowing but again it's kind of a personal preference yeah it always feels weird when you're like one or two lines into the next page and you got to put an act break in so i'm sure you usually find a way to rewrite action and description and massage it to, to make it fit a little better yeah always massage my script so some more basic stuff around the edges of the page margins and spacing honestly your screenwriting program is going to do all this for you all you have to do is not adjust that don't try and widen your margins to fit more words in don't play around with any of that stuff you, if you really care you can look up the actual indentations of 1.5 inches or whatever else it happens to be, but no one actually has to know those things at all because the programs do it all for you. Yeah, and if you are actually using Final Draft, it does contain templates that you can simply open and they will automatically adjust those margins and spacings. And it's always a personal preference at the end of the day, but for shows, you will want to keep that standard. Yeah, exactly. They are calculating the page count and the runtime and how long it's going to take to shoot each scene based off of standard margins and all of that kind of stuff. So if you start playing with that, all the production days are going to run long and the first AD is not going to be able to plan things out as well. So this is a really good reason why you don't play around with those things. The next formatting thing we want to talk about is font. Obviously, we all use Comic Sans. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a 100 point Comic Sans for everything. <laughs> Oprah Pyrus for the Wingdings. cover page. Wingdings is actually my new favorite. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, obviously, <laughs> that is not the case. The industry standard is 12 point courier font. The little kind of like sub fonts that you're usually fine with that are courier final draft, which is in final draft, courier prime and some others. And obviously, the color of your font is just going to be black. 
Right. Outside of the color, just in terms of the font itself, those are the little quirks and specificities that maybe your shorter or the script creator will prefer. Maybe he or she will want Corio Prime or just Corio or Corio Final Draft, whatever the case may be. So those are the elements you'll need to adapt to. But with that said, when it's your own thing, just do whatever you prefer. Yeah, within the courier family, preferably. Yes, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> in terms of when you should be breaking a line or paragraph, essentially the answer to that is wherever you want. I encourage you to use lots of white space. Usually those breaks in a line or a paragraph will in some way affect the pacing of the script. If you have a lot of white space, you are controlling the flow of the read and, and use that to your advantage. Yeah, we've already covered those different examples in previous episodes, specifically the alien script, as well as how to get away with murder scripts that differ in terms of the prose and the, the style of the writing. Yeah, there are a couple of little conventions, like you should start a new paragraph when you're going to introduce a new character. You don't want to put a capitalized character name in the middle of another paragraph of action and miss when a character gets introduced, things like that. But otherwise, it's uh, pretty up to you. I do that all the time. I illustrate my scripts with many pictures and <laughs> links. <laughs> Please do not insert giant pictures or images or graphics into the actual script pages. I have seen people put graphics on the cover page. Totally fine with that. I don't care. But we don't want to see like a hyperlink to like your favorite song on Spotify in the actual prose of the script. The funniest part about that is I've seen scripts do that. And well-received scripts also do that. I know a few, I don't know if it was a Josh Schwartz script, but definitely a well-known screener. Doesn't Arrival and Story of Your Life put the like, symbols in? Exactly. I was just going to mention Story of Your Life doing an example. But again, those are successful screeners who are breaking the rules because they know those rules and are purposely breaking them to illustrate a point versus just uh, showing a photo of uh, their mom in the middle right. of the... I mean, that's play. the issue is it can be done and it can be done well, but as a new screenwriter and people are reading it in that context, no one is giving you the benefit of the doubt about any of these things. They're going to assume, oh, they're not doing the industry standard convention. They're probably an amateur. I can stop paying attention. So if you do decide to make those decisions, you're doing it at your own risk slug lines or scene headers. You're probably all familiar with this, but it's more or less three parts. The first one is going to tell you interior or exterior. Is this being shot inside or outside? That's all you need to know about that. That's all there is to it. There's no mid-interior. There's no other thing that you can... Well, this IE, which is like sort of in between those two, but that's only... Sure, yeah, that, that is shot. true. You can do like uh, IE or int slash X if you're going between interior and exterior, but by and large, it's just interior or exterior. And then in the middle of that, that scene header, you're going to have the location, wherever it is that you are, car, office, Boston, you know, that kind of thing. Usually there is a more specific location, comma, a broader location. Like or or, or dash. Other. It depends on the show. Again, there's this like particular specificities depending on who you're writing for. But most shows I've been on are essentially broader location, dash, more specific location, or vice versa. It could be something like office building, comma, or dash, Manhattan. Or it could be police precinct dash office three fifteen. Yeah, roller coaster dash Disneyland, whatever you <laughs> whatever you want to put in there. So that's the middle section of your scene header or slug line, and then the final little third section is going to be whatever time of day it is. The most basic version of that is day or night. Some people say that's all you should use. There are definitely ways that you can be more specific with that if you want. You can say morning, you can say afternoon, you can say sunrise or dusk, and whatever floats your boat, as long as you're being clear about what time of day it's being shot so that when it gets to production, people understand what kind of lighting they need, how they're going to shoot it, stuff like that. Yeah, don't put like 3.21 p.m. Eastern time. Yeah, that's not how it works. No need to get that specific. Uh, I mean, even the show 24 was not that specific. It just said day or night in its description, or dawn or dusk or whatever yeah, it is. And it also helps the 
reader understand the passage of time. If the previous scene took place during the day and this scene is during the night, we assume it's the same day, just now time has passed into the evening, etc. I think sometimes I've seen like next day in there as well to indicate things like that. Or there's also in parentheses day one or D1, D2, and those are usually for stories constrained by time. So the actual slug line of scene header itself is usually just all caps, but I've seen them bolded, I've seen them underlined, it really just depends. There's another little thing which is like a scene heading or slug line, uh, usually called a subheading, and that is basically just the middle section of your usual scene header. It doesn't have interior, exterior, usually doesn't have day or night with it. It might just be something like kitchen because we've already set up in the top slug line, interior house day, and then as someone is moving around the house, instead of starting an entirely new scene header and having to put an interior exterior, because that often signals an actual kind of edit cut or a, a time change or anything like that, it can be easier for people just to be like kitchen and then bathroom and then kitchen again or whatever if someone's moving around and we're not really cutting away from this action or changing times at all. One last bit about the slug line is whether or not you should be adding continuous to the slug line at the end of it. That's, again, a preference. I mean, personally, I use it when it's a continuous scene, as in when a character is literally moving to another location in a seamless shot. And that's one way to depict the fact that it is actually a continuous scene. It's not a cut to this different location. It's we're actually going to this different location. Yeah, I think a lot of people also use it just to signify that this scene takes place chronologically directly after the last one. There's not a, a cut in time or a jump anywhere. This happened, now this is happening. Whether it's in the same location or another area or whatever it happens to be. I've also seen people write same instead of continuous. Plus one. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing on sort of the slug line train, how do you depict flashbacks or flash forwards or flashes? Well, usually you do that in flash, in flash, in slug, <laughs> in a flashback, you depict it. Uh, at the end of that slug line, once again, you can indicate it in dash flash or parentheses flash, whatever the case may be. There's also something to be said about the typography of those scenes. I've seen some scripts do that where they italicize the entire scene that's a flashback or a flash just to denote it even more on the page visually. But again, it's a stylistic choice. So usually you would see something like interior, house, day, dash, flashback. Or sometimes I've seen flashback moved a little further up in the slug line as well. Again, personal preference, whatever works for you. All right. What about character names? Do I yell every page? <laughs> Nick. No. So a character name is just going to be centered in the middle of the page. It's usually just one name like Fred, or sometimes it has an honorific like Sergeant Peters. I don't tend to see full names for people every time in the characters. It can be done. It just depends on the situation. But most of the time, it's one character name. And when you introduce them, actually, in the, the prose and the action description, you want to capitalize that name the first time that you see them so that we're aware, oh, this is a new character. This is someone I should be paying attention to. And then after that, you're going to usually give an age and a description, either after a comma or in a bracket. So it might be John Walker in caps, comma, 34, comma, a hard, cruel man missing his left eye, you know, whatever you want to do with that. That's how you see the characters. And then once they start speaking in dialogue, you go down and it's character name in the middle of the thing, down another line, and that's where you get all your dialogue. Once again, a lot of these elements are stylistic choices based on your own preferences, but the main thing to keep in mind is to be consistent. If you refer to a character one way, not another, for example, if you're referring to Nick as Nick and not as Mr. Watson, and then at some point during the script, I just start talking and say, hey, Mr. Watson, blah, 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 this may be uh, an issue. Yeah, especially in the action, you want to just reuse the same name every single time. It's like, John does this, John does that. If you suddenly start saying Walker instead of John, then it's like Walker does this, and then John does that. It sounds like you're referring to two different characters. You need to keep that very consistent. Moving on to our next scene, 
Speaking of transitions, those are the little things that you're going to find usually at the far right of the page, and they will say things like, uh, especially at the start and end of your script, you've got a fade in and a fade out. Actually, I think the fade in comes at the top left, and the fade out goes at the bottom right. right. I don't believe I've ever seen a fade in on a TV script, or at least a one hour. I've yeah, never it's seen not that common. Hour. Like it's, I've definitely seen them in screenplays a lot, but uh, some people are just dispensing with the fade ins and fade outs, because often at the end of a script, you find a the end or whatever anyway to see or the end of act or that kind of thing right well i mean that's the thing is in tv especially it's going to double up with the act one or end of act one so exactly but aside from those you often see those kind of actual like edit transitions like cut to smash to fade to black dissolve all that kind of thing what's your opinion on those alex i mean it really depends i don't personally add those transitions in my script unless it's a very specific cut. So for example, if uh, there's a bunch of scenes involving us and then I cut to the B story or smash cut to me hitting you in the face. <laughs> yeah, it's usually used for a specific purpose to give it a sort of feel to the action or how you're going from one scene to another. You don't just want to write cut to at the end of every single scene, which I do see a lot in people's script. Yeah, it just adds needless page count, I feel yeah. like. But believe that the editor knows how to cut between scenes. You don't need to tell <laughs> them to do that. So. <laughs> that's all dissolve like a movie magic maker just star uh, wipe star wipe yeah exactly everywhere. Uh, another very similar thing to that is usually not formatted in that way but more often found within sort of your action description are these camera angles or calling out shots so you're usually going to see something like pan over to or pull out pull in close up on angle on is really common things like that again it's one of those things where I prefer to avoid them. I don't like to pretend to be the director. I'm the writer. I'm writing the story. You're understanding the events of the story. Someone else is going to come in and interpret how they want to see that in a much more deliberate visual way. So I don't need to say slow dolly into this or whatever. Like, I think that that's just going a little bit too far from my preferences. Some people like to do it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, the only time I ever use those camera angles or calling shots are only if it is of narrative importance. So for example, I need that angle on the pen sitting on a table. Mm -hmm. And because that pen is maybe something that I lost in episode five and suddenly we realized, oh wait, it's been sitting here the whole time. If it is of narrative value, then definitely include it. But if it's just a static stylistic visual choice you're not the director you're the writer so behave absolutely and there are some less technical ways for you to do similar things you can still present the same images in your writing without having to say anything about the camera moves to this or whatever so some of those ways that are kind of common i've seen like reveal that's not necessarily a camera description but you are you know revealing something or even we see i think is another quite common one you know we see John standing with a gun in the corner, you know, that kind of thing. It helps kind of guide the, I guess, the mind's eye mind's of the reader eye, yeah. towards something without pulling them out of the world by saying there's a camera moving around in this room, you know? Right. Reveal on is pretty common in comedies also, right? If it's just two people sitting over a table and then reveal third person yeah. just watching this entire conversation. Right, exactly. So um, certainly certain genres and things lend themselves more to others. One last little thing on those kind of transitions or those whatever you want to call them. There are the mores and continueds, C-O-N-T, 
apostrophe D. So usually the place you're going to see that is when dialogue goes over a page. So you've got at the bottom of the page, a character starts their dialogue and they're still talking at the top of the next page. It's important to understand that that is the same sequence of dialogue, especially like we said, when pages start getting pulled out and replaced and revised, it's important to know that. But there is another one of that that you can turn on and off in your screenwriting program where it will do that if a scene goes over a page. And so we've got more on the next page. The scene is continued. These days, I don't think that that's really used that often. And it just, again, adds more kind of dead weight and clutter to the page. I do think it's relatively common in multicam sitcoms, so I don't want to speak for that. But in most other writing, I don't see that really at all. Agreed. Uh, moving on to a prose action and description. So one really important thing to understand when you're writing your action and your prose in your screenplay is the tense of the words that you are writing. It should all be in an active present tense. That's something like Jill runs to the door. It's not something like Jill ran to the door or the door is run up to by Jill, which is obviously a passive way of putting it. <laughs> you know, you can think Hemingway, like active, strong words. Sometimes you're going to see a present continuous or they also call it a present progressive tense. And that is when you're trying to give a sense of the timing of two actions. So two things are happening at once. Uh, something like Jason is reloading his gun when suddenly Bill tackles him. Something like that. It's usually what I do when I write scripts is think Hemingway. That's, that's my go-to. <laughs> Get uh, really drunk and put a shotgun in your No, don't do that. Yeah. Uh, another thing is something we've already alluded to is try to avoid naming specific songs, music, or maybe copyrighted elements playing in the scene. Or you can just use a generic thing like rock music playing here. Yeah, um, exactly. There's yeah. a couple of reasons for that, right? And that's firstly that you are probably not going to get the rights to that. And secondly, people may not understand that reference. So they're not going to know, oh, what's this song that you just referred to? Because I haven't heard it before. Yeah. Once again, all of this depends on the narrative. I feel like narrative takes precedent over those rules any day of the week. However, 99% of the time, you're going to have to abide by those rules. Absolutely. Another really important thing to look out for when you are writing your action and description is what is sometimes referred to as unknowables. And those are things like thoughts, feelings, and intentions, things that belong to characters that can't be seen or implied visually or orally, you know, with sound or dialogue or voiceover. We don't know that Bill is thinking about that time that his girlfriend cheated on him in the scene, even if you write it on the page. And it's kind of cheating by trying to tell a reader that because the audience has absolutely no way of understanding that. And that is, again, a super, super common thing that I see in a lot of scripts. People trying to put in the kinds of things that you typically see in a novel or short story where you can get an insight into the character's mind and what they're thinking and feeling. Everything in a screenplay pretty much has to be somehow visually or orally put into the scene. Right. You want the reader to experience what the viewer is going to experience. So if you tell the reader how to feel, you cannot tell the viewer how to feel visually, right? It's a completely different experience. You need to be able to make that reader feel the same way as the character is yeah, by using, you know, visual language and things like that. And of course, there's some leeway here, like everything, especially in character intros, you sometimes get a little snippet of information that maybe the viewer wouldn't know that is just kind of a little hint to the reader, like this guy is an ex-marine or something. And that kind of helps the departments like costumes and makeup and the actor just understand a little bit more about who this person is and how they can hint that visually with what they're wearing and the way they carry themselves, things like that. And again, like there are definitely writers whose personal style is to do a lot more of this in the script. And it's one of those things that if you do it well, of course, you'll get away with it. But again, as a, a beginning writer, be very careful about it. 
Yeah, another element based on personal style is the typography. Uh, what do you bold? What do you underline or caps and so forth? One of the rules is you need to put in all caps sound effects or major actions to get the attention of the reader. Yeah, those are definitely the most common reasons for for putting stuff in caps. I find that caps are maybe a little more common in comedy, just because you're constantly calling out like big moves that are happening and funny things that are going on, sounds and all that kind of stuff. There are obviously different choices you can make about. Oh, I want to italicize this thing here because I want people to see some emphasis on that, or I'm going to bold that because it's really important. I don't want them to miss it. Again, there are no hard and fast rules about what should be bolded, what should be underlined, what should be italicized. That is entirely up to you. Just remain consistent with it. Totally. Personally, the only thing I put in bold are the character names when they're first introduced, just to catch the eye, much like the plug lines. But outside of that, in terms of the actual prose, I won't bold something up outside of those elements. Yeah, very occasionally I'll use an italic on something. I tend to stay away from underlines, and like you, I will bold my scene headings. I don't bold character names, but again, personal preference. One last thing that's、uh, definitely not a personal preference is a spelling slash grammar. Yeah. No matter how good you are with the English language, there will always be typos. No matter how many times you've read through your scripts, because the way that your brain works is you're no longer actively reading each word once you are familiar with it. You're going through, and you already have、uh, this image of, of what you, your words are and what the story is in your head. So it's important to spell check, run that, even if you think you're the best speller in the world and you've won the regional spelling bee, and、uh, have your friends proofread it for you because outsiders will come in and be like, "Oh, there's a really glaring." Typer right here that your brain and your mind no longer see. A similar kind of thing goes with dialogue. Now, in terms of on the page, you're going to find your dialogue centered underneath the character name when it's being written. It's kind of like the margins of it are a little bit closer into the middle. And same thing as we just discussed with the typography. Most of the time, you're just going to be straight up writing words. <laughs> Use your usual <laughs> English. Capitalize at the start of a sentence. Put a period at the end of a sentence. Whatever. There's nothing super special about what you need to be doing with dialogue once you have those margins in place. Right. The one thing controversial, I guess, and that also goes for prose, is the double spacing.、Uh, I see some people double space after each sentence. I think that's a leftover from the typewriter days. But most people don't do that anymore. Yeah,、uh, I believe it's not recommended in the style guides anymore either. So there's people who are like, oh, this is the correct way to do it, or living. <laughs> Back in the forties or something, I don't know. Clearly,、uh, so、why are you listening to this podcast <laughs> if you're living in the forties? Again, if you want to, you can italicize or underline or something for stress. Very, very sparingly. Be careful about it. You can use hyphens if you want to try and indicate like a rapid jump between things, or use it in the place of a colon. It's this personal style stuff. Ellipses are one thing that I see a lot with dialogue. It's, I think, technically meant to be used when you're kind of coming in halfway through a sentence, or someone has been interrupted, or whatever, and they're finishing what they're saying. So you use it at the start. But I also tend to see it a lot at the end of sentences to indicate like trailing off, or some people just want to put a dramatic pause between things. Personally, I use the double dash to indicate、yeah. interruptions or ending a sentence midway through, just to clarify between the ellipse and the clear interruption. Yeah, for sure. Another thing with dialogue that you're going to see is parentheticals, and what that is is you get your character name, next line down there is a bracket with something in it, and the next line down you get your dialogue. These are very controversial because, again, with the whole "don't tell a director how to direct" in the parentheticals, you're more or less telling an actor how to act. You're giving them a line reading, like. Angry, or sometimes an action like walking away. Usually, those actions can just be put into an action description line and don't need to be jammed into that parenthetical. And usually, the emotions or the intentions of the dialogue can be interpreted through context of what's happening in the scene, or just given to the actor and director to figure out. So, I think there are very few good reasons. 
to use parentheticals in dialogue, especially frequently. The only real reason I can think of that is important is if for some reason the dialogue could be misinterpreted easily in another way where you think it's sarcasm or you think they're being serious and you need to make that super clear so that readers aren't confused and pulled out of the story. Oh, that's funny they say that because every time I put in parenthetical, consult me for how to read this line, every time. <laughs> uh, it has at least 10 pages per script, but oh it's worth God. it. If you do have to use a parenthetical, keep it as short as possible, preferably one word, maybe two, do not write an entire line of like mulling over the eternity of existence and like <laughs> all that kind well, of well that could be a good line for a comedy script <laughs> I gotta be honest. last thing about dialogue you will sometimes see these little things next to a character name in brackets like vo or os and what they mean are for vo voiceover and that's usually when a character isn't actually within the scene but we're still hearing their voice we might be seeing a montage of something and someone's speaking over it whatever it happens to be and that is very different from OS, which is off screen, which means the character actually is still in that room, in that scene. We just can't see them with the camera. They're standing off somewhere. We don't know whatever that happens to be. Sometimes people also write OC as in off camera, but I think OS is the usually uh, preferred one. All right. Going back to the cover page, what should you put on that little uh, piece of paper? <laughs> All right. It's, it's really simple. Title, next line down is a space. Then the next line down will say by or written by. Then the next line down is a space. And then the next one down again is your name. Simple as that for, for most of it. Uh, well, technically, uh, I would not add the second space between written by <laughs> and the name, okay? Whatever it happens. One second. You know, yeah, you can play around with your spaces. Though. As long as you have your title, by or written by, and your name. Uh, if you're a writing team, there should be an ampersand and between your names. Yeah, that's a whole WGA thing. There is, uh, yeah, literal rules Look about into that. ampersand and the and A-N-D rules. It's a whole yeah. other discussion. Occasionally, you will see something like, uh, so title, then story by someone, and the next thing down is screenplay or teleplay by someone else. So that's something else that you might find on there. But aside from that one thing, you're going to have this little block down in the bottom left that will have, if you're a professional writer, your agent or manager's contact information, because, you know, Quentin Tarantino isn't giving out his home address to uh, everyone that they send his scripts to all over town. Uh, not to you, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't have an agent or a manager, you can put your own contact info on, and I usually recommend it, because if you're sending people these scripts, they want somewhere to be able to email you back or whatever. And what you're going to see there most of the time is a date, an email, a phone number, sometimes a physical address. I don't think these days it's really needed anymore because no one's mailing you stuff physically, but it's it's common to see that there. Do not put your WGA registration number. Do not put a copyright symbol or a disclaimer or anything like that else on there. If you want to use an image or a graphic on your cover page, like we said, cool, totally fine with that. Uh, if you're using a different kind of font for that title, be sure to include the font in the PDF you export because otherwise you're going to have a bad time because most of the time I won't have that font for that specific title that you're using because you're using your own font. So be aware of that. Oh, how do you include that in the PDF? Uh, it's an option in the export options of mm -hmm. Final Draft and there you uh, go. other softwares. That's cool. I didn't know that. Sometimes you see people with the next page is like its own thing with a quote or dedication. It's a little bit wanky, but it's fine if you really want to do that. Also, in terms of like watermarks, you don't need to do that. Only They're really only put there to protect production copies of a script. And all that is unmated. If you work on a TV show, all these things, you don't really have to worry about once you are on a show. This is only for your own spec. And in that case, you definitely do not need to personally watermark every copy you send out. 
like your agent will take care of all that stuff, things like that. Do not attach a NDA for people to sign to read your <laughs> script or anything silly like that. Also, like as we've always said, never ask people to sign an NDA before they read your script because it's silly and amateur. Unless you show up unannounced at someone's doorstep, in which case, definitely bring the <laughs> Oh my NDA. God. No, never. Now, if you are physically printing a copy of your script, which is not really done that often these days, but if yeah. you are then you want to do it on white, three-hole paper, letter-sized paper. The holes are going to be punched on the left side of the page. And when you put your brads into it, these brass brads, they are quarter inch. Uh, you put one in the top hole, one in the bottom hole. Do not put one in the middle. And then you obviously <laughs> fold the little things back in there so that people can read it. Yeah, That's you can just standard. buy pre-punched paper also instead of a punch. Yeah, print yourself. directly onto three-hole punch instead of punching your own holes. It's, it's much uh, easier. Much better. All right, let's conclude this little formatting episode with a little bit more software talk. In terms of the actual software you'd be running your scripts on, check out our paper scrap segment for this very episode. We already discussed Final Draft and Movie Magic and all those different softwares. But I did want to mention something regarding distribution, and that something is synchronize. If you work on most shows, your script creditor, your writer's assistant, your showrunner, whoever it may be, is going to be using synchronize probably to distribute those scripts across board uh, for production, for screenwriters, for uh, studios, networks, what have you. And that application will automatically watermark people's names but usually the way it works is you will get access as long as you work on the show obviously you're going to get that access through the production company or the studio uh, you're going to be receiving an email inviting you to that shared group it's kind of like dropbox or most of those cloud-based solutions but again if you're not a script coordinator you probably don't have to worry about any of this yeah another program to be aware of is movie magic business or budgeting or whatever it happens to be called and that may be one of the reasons why some of those those eps and producers like the screenwriters using it because this program is used really often for the first assistant directors and line producers to go through and break down the scripts into what they're going to be shooting day to day and make up a schedule and a, a one-liner and a day out of days and all that kind of stuff and, and also budget the script is how much it's going to cost them. That's a very common program in the industry that they use to do that. So just be aware of, of the existence of that as well. All right, Nick, what are some takeaways for this episode? Number one, know the differences in formatting between one hour, half hour, single and multicam, network and cable, live action and animation, TV scripts. Number two, understand the different documents used in the story process, including story areas, treatments, outlines, and anything else before you even get to a script, as well as the revision process that comes afterwards. That said, you do not have to worry about this, writing your own spec script until you get on staff. Number three, know the conventions of formatting a screenplay on the page and avoid rookie mistakes. When writing your own pilots, it's entirely up to you to make those stylistic decisions and keep track of your formatting. Whereas on a show, it will be the showrunner's call and the script coordinator's duty to keep that consistent for you. All right, a new resource for our dear listeners. So I would just recommend reading as many professional screenplays and TV scripts as you can just to see how the formatting is done. You'd be surprised the number of aspiring writers and emerging writers that are tapping away on their scripts and they've never read a professional screenplay or they've only read one or something. So you should be doing that anyway to better your craft. And everyone does those things a little differently in terms of formatting, but you're pretty quickly going to see what remains consistent between them and how your favorite writers choose to do things and what you like the look of. 
And I would also take a look at the book The Hollywood Standard by Christopher Riley. It's primarily a feature-based book, but it's a great reference book about script formatting for all those little specific questions about italics and so forth. All right, well, that brings us to the end of our episode. So as always, thank you for taking the time to tune in and listen. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 73. And in a few weeks, you'll be able to get the transcript for this episode at paperteam.co slash 73 transcript. If you'd like to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. All of those reviews are going to help us attract new listeners and build our Paper Team listener community. Thanks again to our sponsor, the 2018 Tracking Board Launchpad Pilots Competition. Paper Team listeners can use the code PAPERTEAM at the checkout to save $15 off their entry. And you can learn more about all the Launchpad's current competitions and exclusive partners by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And that Paper Team code is all caps, all one word. As always, I'm on Twitter at TVCalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions, questions on script formatting that we haven't covered yet, send those to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week, we're going to have our friend Logan Creedy come on, who is formerly a development executive at a number of production companies. He's now an independent producer, but he's going to talk us through uh, the development process working at a prodco. Get those pods ready. And not <laughs> <See>? podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> or Keurig pods. Uh, we'll see you then. Bye.